Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. You are watching or listening to Public Comment, the vlog and podcast series where I explore my free thoughts on politics, culture, and self. Today, I've got some interesting topics that I want to talk to you about. First, I'll be talking about the frustrations of marketing. Next, I'll be talking to you about free trade versus protectionism. And then I'll be talking to you about the questions censoring the preservation of digital media. So with that, I begin with the frustrations of marketing. Again, this is from a personal perspective as opposed to an academic one. So I'm not, I'm not here to uh, cite dry research. Not to say I don't like to do research and cite research, so much as to say that uh, this is not some kind of how-to commentary, as opposed to, instead, what I am doing here is contemplating the subject and discussing the experience, the personal experience, with the subject. I just find that more interesting, especially if the goal is to be objective and contemplative and deep about it, as opposed to trying to say, I'm going to tell you this is how you're going to become a YouTube superstar or a podcast superstar or I have all the answers for you. I don't know that I have any answers for you and my goal isn't to have answers for you. My goal is to think, share my thoughts and just have a conversation, delve into and explore the soul etc. Anyway, I'm just going to be doing a very quick sound test. I hope that you would uh, forgive me for very briefly indulging in that. So let me see. The goal isn't great. The sound test is working. The video is working. The podcast recorder is recording and the video is filming and the description is there. Awesome. By the way, speaking of all this, this all has to do with the marketing experience, right? I mean, I'm looking at it from the perspective of a multimedia personality communicator. I don't even know that the official title for what it is I'm ultimately trying to do exists yet. I think part of the whole point here, here is that I'm trying to be an innovative person. And I'll talk to you a little bit more about innovation in a second. Uh, but right now, I think the most important thing that needs to be brought up is the anxieties around navigating your personal marketing issues and challenges, if you will. I know that for me, the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that, to the best of my knowledge, I just lack any kind of brilliance in marketing. However, if I could get A's in college courses, then it has to, I believe it's going to follow logically that if I can read up on marketing and learn what is to be said on the topic, that I can probably comprehend and retain and apply those things. So I'll be trying to do that. And the thing about marketing, right, this, anybody can relate to marketing because marketing has to do with more than just, well, this is your big business enterprise that you're trying to sell to the world, right? It has to do, ultimately, each of us, 
with trying to figure out how in the world we're going to make money. And I tell you, the whole money thing frustrates me. I have a lot of complicated, I would say, views on money. The most frustrating thing for money, the way I understand it, is that it, uh, what's that line by Bob Dylan? Money doesn't talk, it swears, obscenities, who really cares, propaganda, all is phony. Money corrupts a lot of people. I'm not saying money is inherently a corrupting entity. I'm not saying that money is inherently bad. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be significantly motivated by money or profit. However, it's pretty blatantly obvious through uh, the story that is the history of humanity that money and resources, exchangeable, tradable resource, this for that, and the desire to have it makes people rather crazy often. I'd say that in terms of the three or four or five most blatant examples of how deeply money has corrupted our, is cor presently corrupting our society today, right? We've got the people who make weapons. They, it's in their interest either for the country or a number of countries to be engaged in some kind of military conflict. There's incentive for them to see that happen. Now, I'm not saying that every person in the realm of weapons production is therefore trying to incite some form of military conflict, but you can see the temptation, can't you? And we'd understand how psychologically they could fall into that trap, couldn't we? Number two, I would say, similarly, people who manufacture guns, and therefore the people who are entrenched in the NRA, specifically in this climate where guns are just losing their popularity, or if not technically losing their popularity, certainly the polls do indicate, to the best of my knowledge, that people are, shall we say, not in love with the gun policy as it is. I believe an overwhelming majority based on, and I am doing a bad thing and not having the information directly on me to cite, but I believe just about every survey I've ever read on gun policy reveals that people want significant change in gun control policy that in some way, shape, or form curtails gun, uh, the access to guns. I see like this little spot on the corner of my screen. So I've got to move this ever so slightly and I forgive, I, I rather I ask that you, uh, that you forgive me. I hope you'd be willing to forgive me for uh, that uh, distraction. I am a perfectionist, you know, and I still see it there. And it's very annoying. Let's see, I'm just watching my monitor here to see if that fixes it. Yes, that appears to be fixed. Uh, so I apologize for that interruption. So arms producers and dealers and even just gun producers and dealers in general, it would seem that as opposed to specifically gun dealers, 
I think, or gun manufacturers, there's this like disconcerting thing where we're not seeing any effort on their part to have any kind of reasonable advances in gun control or efforts to stop guns from falling in the hands of mentally unwell people who clearly want to obtain guns and harm as many people as they can. This is problematic. This is a perfect example of people who clearly have money on their minds as opposed to, like, you know, the well-being of individuals. So, I mean, this is a philosophical issue that's always on my mind when I'm thinking about trying to move forward and advance in life and make money. I don't want to be corrupted by the desire for money. On the other hand, I do want money and I don't hate money. Other industries, though, that concern me with respect to how money would appear to influence them. The health insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies. How is it, how can it be, for example, that say your doctor says you need medicine A and the doctor writes a prescription, but then the insurance company says not gonna cover it. We're gonna, we're gonna say that you can have a similar medication, not quite the same, the generic or some different very similar, but not quite that medicine, except for whatever reason, your body only responds appropriately to that particular medicine. But the way the law currently is today, the insurance companies can get away with that. And what's, what's the problem here? Obviously, something is interfering with them having more interest in your well-being and our well-being, and it would appear to be money. Right? As Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears, obscenity, who really cares, propaganda, all is phony, right? Definitely a question that one wants to have. So, what's going to happen with these insurance companies? And I think it's a question to ask here. What are their motivations like? What goes on with them? To what degree do insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, to what degree is all of their marketing and all of their attempts to get our money literally nothing but a desire for money versus a desire to actually provide quality insurance coverage? And isn't it interesting that certainly they are suffering from an utter failure from a public relations point of view to communicate to the world that in fact they actually do care about our well-being. I mean, it's amazing that they would appear on the surface as I look that cocky and that comfortable in their money that they don't even feel they need to lobby. Lobby is not the right word. They don't even feel that they need to undertake some kind of serious public relations campaign from where I am. Anyway, I don't have the name of the legislation, but I was talking to my stepdad, he and I were having this conversation, and my mother and wife were all having this conversation yesterday, and we're talking about how there is actually legislation, bipartisan legislation, that is being discussed in the state of New Jersey that would essentially say, if your doctor says you need this specific medication, then the insurance company can't deny it. So let's all get a little bit more information about that legislation and ensure and demand that from our uh, New Jersey lawmakers, and even if you're not in New Jersey, I mean, it's just a good idea. It should 
happen in every state. It should be a national policy. Let's demand that there should be no way that the insurance company tells you which medicine you can or cannot have. That should be up to your doctor and up to your doc and you. That should be between you and your doctor and yeah, I don't know the contemplations of a nurse or anyone else who can have some seriously legitimate invest, you know, investment in the actual quality of your medical care, not some person sitting detached at a, in a insurance company. So again, I'm taking this back to the concept of marketing and saying, on the one hand, there is a rational there is a rational justification in my belief to desire money and to pursue money and profit, but we have to have serious conversations about how desire for money is corrupting our productivity and our presentations of that which we produce. I would say other industries, I mean, I think this goes out saying, but politics, the amount of money in politics and how money has forever, I think, uh, disturbed the good thought and feeling that we could have about politics has, has been an issue. There's talk I've heard about possibly, well, maybe the state could say you can't even raise independent money, but perhaps an X amount of qualifying candidates would share X amount of tax funded money that would ultimately fund competing political candidates. That's a conversation to have. I mean, surely when it's so simple, when, when it's so blatant, right? When a politician, for example, has a stated opinion or something that they claim that they're about and then they're elected into office and then all of a sudden money gets into their hands, their campaign, and we see the industries that it's tied to and we see how utterly and deeply money, in fact, and megalomania and re-election desires actually motivates their work and their activity as opposed to like doing the right thing, ethics, integrity, etc. This is disconcerting and it's unacceptable. Were there any other industries that were really disturbing me? I mean, I would be a little bit concerned also about the oil industries and the energy industries, because on the one hand, they've got oil and they can sell it. And it's going to be easier for them now to sell that as opposed to whatever things they can do, whatever activities they can undertake to make, say, oh, I don't know, electric energy and other forms of energy, something that is going to become more accessible. I do understand that there are certain activities underway for them to do that, but obviously the incentive is not for them to go all in on that. So I would apologize if I had said there was a higher number of industries that I was concerned about, or if there was another industry. That's this is actually one item I forgot to list on the outline was the list of industries 
that I was utterly concerned about. But I mean, I want to bring this back to the whole concept of marketing and what interferes as I attempt, for example, to promote this multimedia free thought series public comment that I'm engaged in. But not just that, I mean, really, anytime I'm trying to like get a job, and I think any of us, as we're sitting here trying to contemplate how do we make money? What do we do to our, what do we do to, how do we present ourselves to make ourselves appear more attractive so that people want to pay us for some kind of service, productivity, etc.? And to what degree is that desire for money going to corrupt what we do? I mean, it's happened to me. I've been corrupted by money, desire for money before. I think I brought it up, I don't think it was yesterday, but the day before, I had self-published this book, and I became so obsessed with making this book a uh, bestseller, and even after that, you know, had to write the best-selling blog or become some rich and famous commentator that has absolutely corrupted at times the way in which I would present myself and the way in which I would invest in how I put my mind into what it is that I'm trying to produce. You know, this obsession with money is such a complicated thing. But it's not as if money, again, is inherently a bad thing. Look, we need money to survive. We need, we need resources. Forget the word money. If, if the US dollar or these pieces of paper or credit cards is the first thing that you think about. I think if we're going to talk about money, the first thing we must conceptualize is this notion of resource. That is to say, what in the world is a usable, valuable thing that is worthy of trade, that people want, that can make our lives better? And it's rational, to the best of my contemplations, to desire resources, both the acquisition of resources, acquiring resources, uh, along with, you know, producing them, becoming a valuable person. That would certainly be one of my lifelong goals, is to actually be valuable, is to be worth money. And so I think if we're going to have a conversation about marketing and money, and this is something I've been talking about since before I even went back to college. This is, this is one of the few things in life I believe I've gotten right since about 2011, is this concept of value. I think if we're going to talk about resources, I think if we're going to talk about economy, I think if we're going to talk about money, I think if we're going to talk about marketing, I think we must talk about values, both in terms of what in the world can I offer of value so that I can be worthy of going out for things of value that I'd like to be in possession of. You know, fair trade essentially. Being, you know, worthy of a fair trade and to obtain the things you want through fair, a fair trade. Uh, but also, philosophically, you have to have this conversation. Like, how do I value something? That is to say, what where in my hierarchy of values does this product or service or resource stand? 
So, for example, I mean, let's just take this cell phone that I just bought a few weeks ago, right? How important is it to me to have a cell phone? How important is it to me to have a cell phone with qualities X, Y, and Z? And I mean, like on a philosophical level, right? Like in an ethical level, how important is it if I'm actually going to sit back and compare it to the other things in my life that I need to compare and contrast it to in terms of how I'm prioritizing things? And what are the ethical principles behind that? You can't get away from ethics in life. One of the things that frustrates me is this notion that philosophy is some purely esoteric concept. Philosophy is what moves us either to do more good or do more bad, to have a good sense of life. So you just can't get beyond the philosophy. You can't get beyond the ethics. And especially, one of the things that's so frustrating when we have conversations about marketing is not what is this value economically, what is this value ethically? Why is this product important as a thing that you just ought to have so that your life can be better in terms of what its meaning is, in terms of how it makes you sleep better at night? And that's, I mean, that's my opinion on that. So, I mean, it gets really awkward trying to do these self-marketing, self-presentation, self, like, trying to make myself look attractive thing. Right, in the first place, let's say, I mean, let's just take my video blog podcast series because that's the thing that I'm working with that I'm most intimately attached to. I have to, I have to think to myself, why in the world would you possibly care about what I have to say? And then I have to ask myself, why should you care about what it is I have to possibly say? That's just one half of it, right? The other question is, why do I do what I do, right? And why does it matter to me? And so you've got, on the one hand, what your productivity means to you to contemplate. And you've got what your productivity could mean to someone else versus the question of, should your productivity mean something particular to somebody else? And, you know... That, that might sound a little bit abstract, but again, let's, let's use the example of, I mean, I'll take myself out of the equation, but let's take the, the example of this wonderful uh, policy journal, political magazine, Foreign Affairs, one that I, I like to read. Why, first of all, are the people who produce this publication, why are they motivated to do it? I mean, it would seem that they're motivated because they care about having constructive political dialogue, right? Why should you care? Right? From a marketing perspective, don't you want to be in on the top political thinking of our time? And then again, but I've had other conversations in the past about Essentially, how does a particular value fit into the complexity that is your day? And we have this conversation about, well, now our society is a niche society, right? So how much does politics actually matter to you versus people who are policy wonks 
versus people who just it's part of their daily thing, their daily routine, to make sure they spend an hour or so uh, trying to get a little bit more informed. So that adds to the complexity. That is, you have to ask yourself, to what degree is your effort ultimately going to be concentrated on this whole niche economy concept where you just say, okay, these are my interests, and now I'm just going to go find other people who have my interests and say, maybe they want to pay to have me contribute in this realm of our interests. Right, let's take the example. So I'm interviewing for a job tomorrow. I'm interviewing uh, to help in the realm of health policy. And so I've got to say, okay, oh, here's an organization of people who care about moving forward, advancing nonpartisan health policy in the state of New Jersey. So I've got to prove that, right, in a real niche, niche kind of way, that I am qualified to produce what they want. So there's, there's that whole concept of marketing, like super targeted versus the, yeah, um, well, let's like take social media, let's take your Facebook newsfeed, right? You want to make the most out of the fact that you can reach a lot of people. So you think to yourself, what can I do? What can I say? How can I present myself in such a way that people will find this attractive enough that they want to pay at, at the very least some mind to it, but perhaps even a significant, more significant amount of time or at the end of the day, money? What are people going to be willing to look at and say, oh, that's something that I want to pay money for? And how does that motivate the way that you, again, the way you present it? How to what degree is what I write on my Facebook newsfeed about this video blog going to be motivated by how I hope that it's merely a successful, successfully marketed move? And I'm not going to lie to you, that makes me uncomfortable. Because to me, it takes away, in a sense, it takes away from the authenticity of communication. But then, again, I have to reconcile this with the fact that if you want to succeed in life and you want your efforts in life that you feel most passionate about to receive attention, then you have to believe in them and therefore you have to present them with a kind of marketing attitude. Do not. So that's something that is, I realize, a conversation to have, you know, standing up for yourself and believing in that which you produce. And the conflict between that and, I mean, frankly, I'll be honest with you, one of my greatest insecurities is just being annoying and is just coming across as, oh, here's that guy who wants us to pay attention to him and feel important who I could care less about. And you know, I ha so I, I do, I have this terrible insecurity as coming across as that person. Of course, if you ask me like what motivates why I'm doing what I'm doing 
and how do I want to present it? To me, it's really cut and dry. And it was best articulated in the conversation I was having with my mother and stepdad and wife yesterday when we went out to dinner. But my mom really put it well when she was talking about Howard Stern and talked about how, I mean, the guy succeeded. The guy was so meaningful because it was his determination to make a living saying whatever the hell he wanted. And that's really where, that's, that's my interest, is saying what I want. Being able to say whatever I want. I'll tell you, nothing frustrated me more in my applications to creative writing programs than the discovery that ultimately creative writing is not, as it turns out, synonymous with free thought. Which is what I thought it should have been which was why I was so attracted to it. Because I thought creative writing and free thought were the same thing. And if you ask me in life what interests me more than anything in the entire world, it is free thought. And I'm just being blunt with you. And that's, that's not marketing or anything other than simply understanding a sense of purpose. And more on that in a second, or more on that shortly, by the way. And, you know, you ask yourself, like, how do I market that concept of free thought? And I can only say this. Like, this, this is how I'm thinking of it now. And I think I'm not one to really give advice on these kind of things. But I'm wondering, if you're out there wondering, how do I stand up for my entrepreneurial thing? Or mode of productivity or service, I think it comes back to, like, really, why are you motivated? That is to say, to me, the value of sharing preserved free thought is this ability to navigate through a world of extreme information, overload, and bombardment. That would be part of it. Another is the fact that it often just feels like everyone is actually trying to get some kind of control over you. Sometimes not on purpose, sometimes not in a way that is belligerent, but, right, everybody is trying to market. Everybody is trying to say, pay attention to me, buy my thing, listen to me, Tell me how cool I am. That's just the kind of... I mean, I think to a degree that's just how people are. Right? If you read Friedrich Nietzsche, I think one of the most valid points he makes, one of his greatest insights into human psychology, the will to power concept, that ultimately humans want to feel powerful. Ultimately humans are motivated, perhaps. I think Nietzsche would argue they're motivated by that which makes them feel at their most powerful. Thus, I've always liked to contemplate, for example, the perspective of, let's say, the porn actor or porn actress. And would it be the case that the person who's engaging in porn, for whatever reason it may be, at the end of the day, they perceive that as their, that mode of productivity, that mode of activity where they feel the most empowered. And I'm not putting any moral judgment or lack thereof into that contemplation, except to say 
Again, do we do at the end of the day what makes us feel most powerful? And so does your marketing and productivity, does part of it have to center around your ability to say, here's how what I do can empower you more. And, you know, so I have to ask myself if hypothetically that's something to do with it. How does the Sean O'Connor video blog and podcast series possibly empower you? Oh man, <laughs> I don't have that much self-esteem yet. What I can say though, one thing I'm comfortable saying about myself is like Howard Stern, I have for the first time in my life, finally reached a point where I can say whatever the hell I want to say, and I can think freely. And truly engaging in free thought has taken me 33 years. It has taken me 33 years because there's always been someone else's notions of how to do something that I've felt at times sort of too submissive to. Whether it's someone's idea of what creative writing was or someone's idea of what philosophy was or what people in those realms should do, or even when I ran for political office, even when I, you know, during my libertarian phase, I was told what a libertarian was supposed to be and my own notions of how to adapt libertarianism were rejected by pretty much everybody. During my Republican phase, I didn't really get along with the ideologically, I didn't really see eye to eye so much with any of my fellow Republicans at the time. I can say it is nice during this democratic phase of my life where I imagine unless the Democratic Party sort of splits and changes, I can't imagine I will be shifting in that respect otherwise. And, but again, one of the things that I enjoy about the Democratic Party is I do find that there is a lot of openness for discussion and free thought. And that's one reason I feel so comfortable with the Democratic Party. Right, so, so how, does, how, how does my free thinking empower you? No, your free thinking is going to empower you. Let's be clear about that. But the point is that it enables you, in my opinion, to just sort of ride this stream that is literally independent of anything other than that desire for freedom. Self-determination. Sense of self. And the self as it delves in and out of the various aspects of life as it wants to. I mean, I would call it free thinking, like just thinking constructively to a degree. But I think that there's a lot to be said about the concept of free thought. And there will be more about that that I do in the future. I just found a free download of an essay by Bertrand Russell. It's called On the Value of Free Thought. 
I will be delving into that more. Also, I've told you in previous days that one of my favorite writers is Montaigne, the personal essayist. The beauty of his personal essays is ultimately they are free thoughts. They are writings documenting and preserving his free thinking. One reason I love Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, why that's my favorite novel thus far, one of the reasons beyond the moral or ethical values in that book and the, the brilliance of the aesthetic contemplations, it, it's just a book really in which this character thinks freely. So I'm pretty sure that like free thought is my thing in life and that a discouraging observation I've had about this notion of free thought is that anymore, no longer, are the universities necessarily staunch advocates of free thought. Or if they are, I don't know where, what category, what academic discipline, free thought as a concept really applies for them. At least, I mean, again, I think part of the problem was I thought literature and or creative writing was going to be that realm in which free thought existed. I thought free thought and art or free thought and the marriage of art and philosophy. I thought those notions were all sort of deeply entangled in an umbrella together. However, I find that people who tend to delve into these concepts as academic disciplines like a degree of I want to say complicated orthodox like conventions I mean, even in the, the way philosophy is taught, as I understand it, having read through numerous textbooks, being in the possession of them, and having done my own autodidactic studies of philosophy now for over 10 years, I guess it's something I've been doing, what, I first started really in undertaking my studies of philosophy at 20. Two. So it's been about 11 years. And one thing I've observed in the teaching of philosophy is that we live in a, what you would call a postmodern world, philosophically speaking, and this postmodern world is this very ironic thing where on the one hand, there is this sort of empowering, liberating notion of anything goes, except it often appears to be anything goes, rather anything goes as the chiefs of the discipline say so. And I know that's sort of abstract and hard to Articulate in a way that makes more concrete sense to you. But I guess a really good way to put it is 
that your textbook is oftentimes going to be the defining entity of concepts. And even if the textbook sort of says anything goes, that's technically an impossible notion. And so there's this sort of double standard of, yeah, well, anything goes according to these textbooks, except these textbooks are also making claims, aren't they? And so they're the claimed authorities. I know that's, that's a really abstract realm of experimental thought there. You'd have to tell me how much that does or doesn't make sense to you. I'm trying to ask how much it even makes sense to myself. That's one of the, that's one of the risks you run when you think freely out loud is you might just end up saying something that doesn't make sense or that you regret saying or that was based on a major contradiction or that lacked any kind of solid factual basis. So if I did go on a chain of reasoning that was ultimately inappropriate, I apologize. I think this will be something that I want to listen over, watch over, and think a little bit more about. But, I mean, I would just give you one other example, I think. Um, with respect to the irony that is this... Uh, Thing that we call free thought as something that has to go beyond academia. It's also because what it means to be free is that you're not really bound by anything. But I think you also can't be dogmatic even in your skepticism. And I guess that's what I was really trying to articulate. So, yes, Eureka, I figured out ultimately what I was trying to get at. Yay. The, the irony of postmodernism is that it wants to be free and is therefore sort of skeptical of everything, cynical of everything it comes across as, to a point where it's almost dogmatic cynicism. That is to say, I'm not going to listen to what the universities say, I'm not going to listen to what the political parties say, I'm anti-government, I'm anti-religion, I'm against any form of technology, any form of social media, etc., etc. Just this sort of refusal to your reluctance to contemplate a particular thing or associate with a particular thing just because you want to be unattached to all things. I think that in itself is actually contradiction and not free or liberating. So I guess my view on academia in the context of free thought is that free thought can go in and out of academia, but it is neither something that is confined to academia or that is inherently opposed to or detached from it. And so as I'm thinking about producing these free thought contemplations, 
video blogs, podcasts, etc. in this sort of this multimedia platform, thinking about the concept of media and media as opposed to academia, I do ultimately find media, the, that concept of the media industry, social media or mainstream media or just that notion of media, slightly more liberating than academia. I think it's inherently more liberal. I think it's inherently freer. I think it's inherently more of the people. I think it's inherently more democratic. I went on a tangent beyond that which was expected. I was also going to talk about defining... Um, I was going to be talking about uh, a little bit more about like categorization and defining what it is one does, but I'm going to save that for another time. In fact, I take notes on my outlines here. I'm just going to put um, save here. And I want to actually move on and talk about free trade. This is an important thing. So I recently came across two interesting articles. One was from The Economist and the other was from Foreign Affairs. I'm very happy because I get the hard copies, uh, the tangible paper editions of my foreign affairs and a digital version. With The Economist, I only get the digital because I'm just not that rich yet. Though, ironically, I, I wanted to actually get into this conversation about digital versus paper and the preservation of digital media, but uh, this is also going to be saved because I ended up talking a little bit more about free thought than I did on um, these other concepts. Um, but so, like, freedom has been the theme of the day, hasn't it? Freedom and economy. Uh, so, this first article from The Economist, published June 27th, 2018. So, it's, it's just short of a year old. The name of the article is, What is the Future of Free Trade? So, it's a kind of meditation or examination exploration of certain aspects of free trade versus protectionism. And though there are numerous aspects of the article I could talk about, uh, because there is actually more I want to talk about in the Foreign Affairs article than the Economist article, but I do want to bring to your attention one very interesting fact that this Economist article did bring up. So, and I, I would need to confer with you, the experts and other media out there, as to the most updated version of this observation. But it was pointed out in this article that as of last June, Mexico shipped about 80% of all imports to the United States, but noted that Mexico is absolutely trying to diversify, specifically looking into South America to buy beef and soybeans, and also Mexico looking into the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade agreement, which the United States under the Trump administration is not currently a part of. And this raises a question as a, a sort of type, a what if question for, I think, to 
have you uh, meditate on a bit. What if Mexico does continue to diversify? And what will that mean for the U.S. economy? And while there is that question in terms of what kind of impact it might have on jobs, what it might have, impact it might have with respect to prices on things we pay, there's the sort of immediate impact questions. There's also the broader context question. What does this have to do with an economy that's evolving in other ways? And what about the philosophical questions? And this is where I get into this foreign affairs article. We're going to get very philosophical here and talk about free trade versus protectionism and some of the implications of free trade. That, and I thought this article just explained it really well. So I want to encourage you to check this article out. Here's a quick picture of it. This is the obviously not the online version, but it's called The Free Trade Paradox, The Bad Politics of a Good Idea by Alan S. Blinder. Alan S. Blinder is a Gordon S. Rentschler Memorial Professor of Economics and Public Affairs at Princeton University and the author of Advice and Dissent, Why America Suffers When Economics and Politics Collide. What is this article about and why is it that I think you should read it? So, the title itself is actually puts, puts it really well, right? The title is The Free Trade Paradox and the subtitle is The Bad Politics of a Good Idea. Well, the whole point of this article is that while free trade looks bad or sounds bad or can come across as politically unappealing to the superficial thinker or the person who just isn't schooled or investing thought in the more objective aspects of policy analysis, it would turn out that, in fact, as this author, as this professor argues at least, that free trade is actually a very good idea for the economy, even if it doesn't appear so, and even if actually fighting against free trade is, objectively speaking, often beneficial for politics. So that's sort of what the article contemplates. I think the first thing that I want to do is just read to you the few things that I highlighted because they were extremely interesting to me. So, so this, this point was really interesting to me, um, where Professor Blinder writes this, every move toward freer trade creates both winners and losers, just like almost any economic change. If the United States cuts or eliminates tariffs on steel, for example, the arrival of more foreign steel will hurt domestic steel companies and cost some American steel workers their jobs. Those people will rightly see themselves as victims of trade. That other Americans, automakers and their employers say, are winners from that same trade will be little consolation. Right? So what's most interesting about that point is this. In the realm of trade, I mean, obviously in the economy in general, there's always going to be winners and losers. Even in some 
theoretical utopian version of communism, there's always winners and losers because there's always someone in charge. Hierarchies are inevitable. There's always going to be winners or losers in an economy. And so why would trade, international trade, be any different? So as we make various trade negotiations, whether they tend towards even the protectionist versus the free trade route, people are going to get hurt. So then the question is, how does that get addressed? And if that can be addressed, what are the implications for policy? And so this was really interesting. Professor Blinder, I just want to see if Professor Blinder was this a PhD person? Did it say whether or not? Because I always like, if someone is a doctor, I like to call them doctor. It actually doesn't say. So this person may very well have a PhD and it just doesn't say. But I, they don't, so I'm not going to use that title or describer. Here was an interesting policy point that was made that I think is well worth further discussion. And certainly something that I'm sort of putting on my policy possibility contemplation list, a discussion item list, if you will. Here's, so here's what Professor Blinder writes, or Blinder, I don't know what the right way to pronounce it is. I should write the professor and ask. The winners could, right, the winners in any kind of trade deal, let's say a free trade deal, could, in principle, compensate the losers and still have something left over for themselves. Trade adjustment assistance, for example, also called TAA, offers people who have lost their jobs to foreign competition money for retraining and extra income while they are unemployed. But trade adjustment assistance, or TAA, is poorly funded, is hard to access, and reaches few displaced workers. In principle, Washington could improve it. In practice, however, Republicans don't like the program and organized labor sometimes scoffs at it, calling it burial insurance. Unions prefer jobs to welfare. Interesting, right? So in other words, policy-wise, this is an addressable issue. If people lose their jobs to foreign trade, there is such a thing, an already established trade adjustment assistance, we could increase that. That is something we could pay more attention to if we're going to spend more time on freer trade agreements. Or, as Trump believes, as President Trump believes, we could go the protectionist route and instead try to come to trade deals which put taxes or tariffs or quotas or some kind of impediments on foreign competition coming into the country and therefore prop up the businesses domestically in the United States. And so this article then goes into a sort of second phase of discussion on this topic and talks about a kind of hypocrisy or irony here. 
I, I dropped some, my bookmark here. Uh, so this actually, I forgot to highlight, I guess. I should have, though. Um, here we go. So this is interesting and worth noting as well. How are we on time? Okay, this is going to be one of those to-be-continued issues or something that we talk a lot about in the future. Uh, but I wanted to get this out because I said I was going to talk about this yesterday and I digressed so much that I failed to do so. And I wanted to make sure that I got this in now, especially it's fresh on my mind. I find it terribly interesting also and think that you should consider this. Okay, further from this article. New technologies destroy and create far more jobs than trade does. But despite sporadic fears of robots, it is hard to find anyone today who advocates blocking technological progress on the grounds that it will cost jobs. Economists see technological improvements and freer trade as similar in their effects. They both offer higher living standards to the majority at the expense of job displacement for the minority. By the way, philosophical question to contemplate as an aside here, as a footnote. To what degree would contemplating, therefore, the implications of this trade debate put free trade on the side of utilitarian philosophy? Just a question to throw at you for something we might want to talk about in the future. Moving on, though. But most people, and therefore, the politicians who represent them see no contradiction in supporting technological advances while opposing freer trade. Raging at the machine seems stupid, but raging at foreigners does not. The politicians also, the politics, rather, also work better. Unlike Silicon Valley, foreign exporters have no representatives in Congress, although they do hire lobbyists, and make convenient scapegoats for demagogues such as Trump. Excellent point, isn't it? And though I guess this depends on who you do ask, because you probably do have individuals out there who do scoff at how technology is killing jobs. Nonetheless, I mean, if you look at, let's say, the music industry and how people aren't really bemoaning how easy it is to listen to music on YouTube or Spotify or what have you far cheap, for far cheaper than they could when they had to buy the CD, even though arguably maybe that's hurting the music industry to some degree or certainly making it change and adapt and evolve, you don't exactly see the majority of people up in arms protesting the streets on that one, do you? So it does raise this question of why is technology getting better treatment than free trade? And with that, I want to offer my opinion based on my research thus far on the question of free trade versus protectionism and tell you definitely I'm on the side of free trade. To me, that's a no-brainer, though. Why would you say that it makes more sense to prop up the economies of people? J just why would you prop them up merely because they live closer to you? Why is it that just because I'm an American, 
my fellow Americans should get special... Essentially, why should the rules of the competition be rigged just so that they can get an advantage in international trade at the expense of other people on Earth who are fellow humans trying to make a living just like you and I? Why do those, pers why do those folks have to be treated like crud? But people, just because they share a political border with us, why do, they, why do we say that they should get um, the rules rigged and fixed in their favor so essentially they can cheat? In my opinion, that doesn't make sense. In my opinion, freer trade is more ethical trade. And I am definitely a proponent of that. Now, that's not to be confused with the scenario whereby, let's say, Apple moves some factory that was, let's say, initially in the United States and ships their operations to China, that in itself I wouldn't have a problem with. But when they do it and then they rip off and exploit the Chinese workers, that I have a problem with. Not because of the jobs that it's killing in the United States, but the fact that it's exploiting people. And while also exploiting people, those corporations who are still Americans or anybody, it doesn't matter what country they are, they are making a killing off of killing the souls, practically, of other people, it would seem. And that's a documented fact if you want to look at the number of suicides that have been uh, committed. The people that have killed themselves working for Apple in China, they have to have body nets in the factory areas because so many people kill themselves because their lives are so miserable because they're worked like slaves and really make almost no money doing so. It's, it's tragic and that's one reason why I feel good about the fact that the last cell phone I bought is not an iPhone and the last laptop I got was not an Apple laptop. So now I have talked about the things I want to talk about today for now. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to watch or listen. And I do want to remind you that there are multiple ways to access public comment. You can watch the video blog, you can watch it on Facebook, you can watch it on YouTube, or you can go to publiccomment.blog, where you can also listen to the podcast if you prefer. And you needn't necessarily station yourself at publiccomment.blog to listen. You can go to Spotify, you can go to iTunes, uh, there's a, you can go to Stitch, there's a variety of podcasting platforms you can listen on it. That's your preferred medium of engagement with the public comment free thought multimedia series. And I also want to say that if you did enjoy this, I hope you'd share it with your friends and that you'd agree with me that it would be cool if this were a money-making endeavor. And uh, if you were therefore inclined to help me out, uh, with that, certainly, I would be appreciative. And, you know, I don't want money to be the end-all of things, so if not, that's really quite fine, because you, uh, you just can't convince everybody of these things. So thank you. I will be chatting with you again soon. By the way, in general, if you have any thoughts 
if you have any questions, any way you, um, any, any, I'm sorry, anything that you want to articulate, uh, as long as it's not uh, destructive trolling type of a thing, please feel free to leave comments. You can make comments on my social media, I'm on Twitter as well, or you can email me at sean.publiccomment at gmail.com. You can Facebook me, you can leave a comment on the blog, there's various ways to reach out. If you're interested in a collaboration project, you'd like to, um, you'd like to participate in a dialogue of some sort, I'm always interested in those kind of things too. Thank you again for your time. Have a wonderful day. I look forward to chatting with you again soon.